Good evening. I'd like to welcome everybody back tonight. Uh, tonight's sermon will be taken from Revelation chapter 21, verses 7 through 8. Every time, I kind of have to laugh to myself every time I use scripture or pull, especially for a sermon from the book of Revelation. I can remember a time whenever preacher would start to use the book of Revelation, usually meant he was going to get in trouble. After I'd grown up and studied more in the Bible, I realized it's probably because of stigma that had grown from the misunderstanding of the book of Revelation. Just like with any other book that you might read, you can't read the last chapter and then jump back to and expect to understand everything. You have to start at the beginning. So the same's true with the book of Revelation. And after reading and studying more in the Bible in its entirety, gained a lot better and a lot more thorough understanding of the book of Revelation. It's much easier. But tonight, the title of the sermon is Bold in Christ or Cowardly in Satan. Now I know from being here in the South that calling somebody a coward, that usually doesn't sit well. To borrow a line from old TV Westerns, I said, them's fighting's words. So when I thought of the title of this, I immediately thought of the Apostle Peter. And it's probably a good thing that the Apostle Peter didn't hear tonight because hearing, the, hearing just simply that word, a coward in the title, I would probably end up like the servant of the priest that got his ear cut off uh, the night when uh, they went to come to get Jesus. You know, Peter's actions at that time was probably more like a policeman firing a warning shot. And it was probably more of, of him asking, are you ready for a fight? But by using the word cowardly, and by no means intend to insult anyone, that's not my intention. Uh, my intention is, is to call, is not to call anyone names or to insult anyone, but I also believe we should call Bible things by Bible names. And we speak where the Bible speaks, and so that's all I'm doing is using exactly what's in that verse. So in Revelation 21, 7 through 8 reads, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So here we have another list of those who won't be in heaven, just like what's recorded previously in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, Ephesians 5, 5, Romans 1, 26, 32. There are others, but that's the major ones. So the Bible's very specific on the types of people who are in danger of losing their souls. So I've been doing some personal study uh, on evan just personal evangelism for myself. Uh, had questions, concerns about some of my feelings. So when I, this is when I came across Revelation 21, uh, especially verse eight. And I know there are a lot of people just like me that you get nervous. You find it hard to go up and talk to someone or to knock on a door of somebody you have no idea who they are, you've never met them in your life, and to start up a conversation about Jesus and that person's salvation. I guess it's probably just not really we feel like a normal, it's a normal thing or a normal response or something we, we normally do. And it's out of our comfort zone. 
but out of my own issues trying to find out how to create those conversations, I went to God's word to find the answer. But coming across this in Revelation 21.8 and reading that word cowardly, I just had to sit there and think and kept thinking, wondering what it was that God meant here. So to get a better understanding, let's start by looking at that word cowardly and how it's used here. First, the Greek word and meaning of that word cowardly. It's, I cannot, I can read Greek better than I can speak it, but it's D-E-I-L-O-I-S means fear-driven. And here it describes a person who loses their moral fortitude that is needed to follow Christ. Or it refers to an excessive fear of losing, causing someone to be faint-hearted, cowardly, hence to fall short in following Christ. Also, not all translations use that word cowardly. Some try to put it in a nicer term and use the word fearful. But by looking at the Greek and going back to its original meaning, it pretty much refers to exactly what it says. Now, I'm not saying that someone who gets nervous going up to a door, knocking on a door, trying to talk to a friend about a Bible study, that's I'm not saying that's exactly, that's, that's what Revelation 21.8 means. But what it is saying is that a person who lacks that moral fortitude, where I've heard it as gumption, I've always heard it called, but those who lack this are in danger of losing their soul. If a person who is challenged thinks to himself and asks himself, if I proclaim the truth, if I stand with God, what's it going to cost me? That, probably, that person is probably in danger. But if a person who is challenged thinks to himself, I can do all things through Christ who, is in, who strengthens me let come what may. That person is probably on more solid ground, borrowing a line from Philippians 4.13. How many times have you had the chance to tell somebody about Christ but failed to do so out of fear? Fear of rejection, fear of being made fun of, or even fear of what our friends would think. I'm sure, I know I have, I'm sure there are several others too. It seems, again, that it just goes against man's normal way of doing things. When we do this, we just don't, it just doesn't have that natural feeling. It's something we have to work at. For most of us, again, knocking on a door may cause fear, but what about in our daily life? What about how we live our lives? Do we live our lives in Christ? Are our daily lives a testimony for Christ? Are we living a life such as God-fearing people, doing what's right? Are, are our lives a shining light on that hill for Christ? I think, of us, I think most of us feel we fall into this second category. But are we bold with our lives in Christ? Do we stand up for Christ when the world tells us to sit down and shut up? When I was preparing, preparing this sermon, I kept thinking of these evangelists, and especially the TV evangelists of, me, of these mega churches. And it always seems that when people want to ride, they, they just want to ride the fence when it comes to being directly questioned with hard issues. Most, when cornered with issues concerning morality, 
concerning things like homosexuality or, homo or sexual immorality. They want to rely on answers like, God loves us all, or God loves everybody. Or, I know Doug brought this up in Wednesday night, and I kind of thought he might be going too far into my sermon tonight, <laughs> but we all have to develop that personal relationship with God. And that answer comes up more and more and more. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a cop-out. They won't come out and take a stand for fear of upsetting their base. And if they upset their base, they lose money. They lose donations. By the way, that answer, we all have to develop that personal relationship with God, simply means they're removing that standard. You're allowed to remove that standard by which you will be judged. Again, this was Wednesday night. Doug brought this up late in the class. Satan would love for us to try to remove that standard, that which we will be judged by. But if we remove that standard and we simply pull it out, but basically simply put, if we remove that, if we remove the law, there will be nothing left but anarchy. Every person will be doing what he wants instead of what's right. And uh, the Old Testament had a lot to say about that. That line, like I said, developing that personal relationship has developed into something which is more or less, just like I said, it's a cop-out. The Bible is our standard. But shifting gears a little, what does it mean to be bold in Christ? What do you think when we think of the word bold? I mean, I think, you know, through my first response would be the opposite of fear. Or someone might say that that person, it's a person who isn't afraid to act. I'm sure there'll be several different responses to what one would think when they hear the word bold. Webster's says it's someone who is fearless or daring without fear. As Christians, we are to proclaim the word boldly without fear. We see this in Peter and John in Acts 4, 11 through 13, where it says, Jesus is the, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under, under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They saw the way these men spoke. They spoke boldly in Christ without fear. Peter and John here in Acts are noted again because of their boldness and courage in the Lord. When I think of boldness or courage, I tend to think of that charge that we're given in 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, 2, 3, which says, preach the word, be prepared to in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Reminds me of courage and boldness because it seems a lot like that's the times that we're in or headed to. The time when people won't stand for sound doctrine. 
That time when all people want is to have their ears tickled. And it takes bold and courageous men to stand up before mankind and before that sarcasm and criticism and preach the word. Scripture, the scripture grows right along with 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. It says, and to these things that you have heard from me among many faithful witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That is a very serious charge to be able to take the word and entrust it to, to men who are able to teach and to carry that on. But again, that's the, the standard. It's also the standard that Satan would love to have removed. That we are to entrust or commit this standard, the word of God to faithful men to teach others also. So we are to be bold and courageous and proclaim the word. Scripture also tells us we are to be bold in rejecting the world. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper this is true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to to, to test and approve what God, what is God's will, what God wills, what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. We are not to conform ourselves to the pattern of, of this world. We are to be separated from this world. We may be in this world, but we're not of this world. We are to reject the ways of this world and be strong in standing for the pattern of Christ. But we are also to stand bold for the truth. When we talk of standing for the truth, we must understand that there are many people in this world who are against us. There are lots of people who, who simply want to reject the word of God, but they also expect everyone to believe the way they do. We are warned of this pitfall and danger in Philippians 3.18, which says, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I think we all know that it's not always a popular thing for us to do, to stand up or even to, be stand, to stand up boldly for the word. We can again see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, which says, Therefore, my brother, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is not in vain. Again, it may not be the popular thing to do, but it's what we must do as Christians. We must stand bold for the word of Christ. but it might even make enemies of some of our friends. Galatians 4.16 says, Have I come, have I now come, now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Standing bold in Christ may not always be popular. It may cost us the friendship of those we love. But as a Christian, 
we wouldn't be telling our friends if we didn't love them. We wouldn't be telling them about Christ if we didn't care about them. We wouldn't be trying to persuade them if we weren't concerned about their eternal salvation. But we must be prepared because they may not accept it. So where is this boldness? Where does it come from? How do we gain this power and boldness and courage in Christ? Simply the power and, and boldness comes from the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing sunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we see here that the power, this power comes from the word of God. It's powerful and it's a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. So not only is it a source of power, but it also knows of our most inner thoughts and intense within our heart. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Again, we see that this power and boldness we are looking for comes from the gospel, the word of God, that it brings salvation to everyone who believes. What comforting words for the Christian, but also what a terror it is for those who are unbelievers. The word of God, our comforter and our source of power, that power we need to go, to go boldly, knowing that we as Christians have found salvation through the word of God. God's word is also the source, like I said, of our power. Ephesians 3.20 tells us the basis of our boldness and courage in Christ. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. So not only is God the source and for our power and our boldness that we're looking for, but his power that is working within us is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. I don't know about you, but I have a very, I can have a very vivid imagination. And I think a lot of us can. It's hard to imagine that the power of God, that it working within us is able to do way more than we can ever imagine. That truly is awesome power. With power like that, how can we not be bold in Christ? Not only is the power of God so immense and bold, we must take comfort in knowing that his power, the same power working within us, it's also way more powerful than Satan. 
1 John 4, 4 tells us, you, dear children, are, are from God and have overthrown them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We shouldn't fear, fear Satan. 1 John tells us that power that we have within us, that power that we're looking for, that power is greater than the power of the one who is in the world. We have the power to overcome evil. We have the power to overcome Satan. We have the power to overcome the world. All in the power of God, the power of the gospel, the power of the word, which is in us. Again, that should be such a comforting thought, but we must accept that word. We must accept that power. We must accept God in our lives in order to gain that power, that power which is able to overcome. You know, I started this sermon with Revelation 21.8 where it lists cowardly as one of those who will, never, will, will not enter into the gates of heaven. But that, the, you know, that those who, who are cowardly, that they have their part in that lake of fire. I also chose to look at boldness and courage we gain through the word of God. How, how we are to use that courage and how we are to use that power to overcome evil. How we are to be bold in proclaiming the word of God and how we are to be bold and reject the ways and pitfalls of the world and how we are to stand bold for the truth we also looked at how we are to be bold and fearless and lead God's people to commit God's word to faithful men who will be able to teach others how we are to preach God's word in season and out knowing that the world will will reject the word and rather have their ears tickled by false prophets we also looked at how we are to have power and boldness and express our faith to the world and how we are to have boldness and be fearless when we face criticism and opposition from the world and lastly where the power this power and boldness comes from from the word of god this is the source of our power and boldness which gives us more than we can ever imagine But back to the beginning, but as for cowardness, it's easy to look up the definition of cowardness. It's easy to place labels on things, actions, and people, mainly other people. It's hard when we do it and look at ourselves. It's harder for us to examine our own life and our own actions by that same standard that we use when we look at somebody else. No one wants to think that they could ever act that way. You know, we look at the Lord's Prayer 
and I always have to pause and reread and reread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's one of the hardest things to do. It's so much easier for us, for people to look at others and judge them not out of our heart. And again, no one wants to think that they act that way. Instead, people want to make excuses. They want to blame it on their environment. They want to blame it on how they were raised. They want to find any excuse in the world that they can before they will ever claim their own claim for their own actions. You know, as far as bold and bravery, I've known some pretty brave people in my life. I've known people who ran into burning houses to save kids, an actual instance. Some might say, well, he was a fireman. He was paid to do that. But that's no excuse that, you know, that man did what he saw what was right. He saw what was right, and he acted. All he saw was a couple of kids in a burning house. I'm sure he didn't even think about how much or how little that paycheck was that the city was giving him at the time. I've known EMS techs who, without concern for their own safety, ran into hazardous atmospheres, hazardous areas, which were in danger of exploding, so that they could provide life-saving action to somebody that was hurt. And they stayed there to help until, we get up, until they could get them out. I've met people who were in the service who won the CMH, Congressional Medal of Honor, the highest medal for bravery in our land. They simply said they were doing what was right. They didn't think about medals or honors. They saw a fellow soldier in need and they went to help. Are these the definition of bravery and boldness? If you ask them, they'll tell you it isn't. It's about doing what's right. On the flip side of that, I've known several people that fit that definition of Webster's of cowardly. I'm not gonna go into specifics, but those people simply were more concerned about their own personal safety over others. They were more fearful about what it would cost them than what it would, how it would help someone else, sometimes their best friend. I'm not judging them. Their own actions judged them. Were they bad people? Of the ones I've known? No. <clears throat> they were all what we would consider good people. They simply made that choice to think of themselves first before they would think about their fellow neighbor, co-worker, friend, relative. But when I think of a cowardly act in the Bible, and I know this is gonna take some explaining, but the first person that comes to mind is Peter. 
Peter, of all people in the Bible. How could I even dare to think of Peter committing a cowardly act? Well, we read of that account of Peter denying Jesus three times in the Gospels. In Matthew 26, 74 and Mark 14, 71, Peter even starts to curse when he denies knowing Jesus. Peter, not just, he didn't just deny that he knew Jesus. He forcefully denied Jesus while cursing. He was even so upset, so mad and scared about what was going on that he began to curse those who were around him while he denied Jesus. Was this a cowardly act? I think that Peter's world had just collapsed around him. All at once, all of a sudden, with no warning, according to what Peter thought. Even though Jesus was up front and told them and warned them, still, the world of all the apostles had just collapsed all around their ears. It's kind of a funny choice of words because just hours before Peter, Peter was cursing and denying Jesus, Peter had pulled a sword and even cut the ear off the servant of the priest. Peter at that moment was probably one of the bravest people. He was ready to fight the ultimate fight of good and evil. He just knew that Jesus was there and ready to establish his earthly kingdom right there and then. Even though Jesus had just told them exactly what was going to happen, they simply hadn't listened. They had their own preconceived ideas of what was going to happen and they simply shut everything else out. So here's Peter committing one of the bravest, most bravest acts, then within a few hours to committing what we would also, what we would also define as a cowardly act. Yet Jesus loved him. Jesus never stopped loving them, all the apostles. Jesus even forgave Peter way before Peter ever forgave himself. I love the account in John chapter 21, starting in verse 15, where Jesus asked Peter if he loves him. And this is after he's, he's risen. Jesus asked Peter three times if he loves him. You know, I can only imagine that with, with each progression, each time that Jesus asked Peter if he loves him, that Jesus probably in the beginning had a crack of a smile. Second time, a little larger smile. And then thirdly, with a full-blown smile when he asked Peter if he loves him. Was he forgiven? Yeah. And again, I imagine Jesus, he forgave Peter way before Peter ever forgave himself. So we've looked at boldness and cowardness, looked at biblical examples of each, where we are to be bold, and the hazards of being so fearful that someone would deny, even deny Christ. We've also looked at, at that simply being nervous or scared to talk to someone about Christ. It's not being cowardly, it's being human. But if that fearful nervousness comes to a point of denying Christ, then that person may be in jeopardy. But there's a difference between nerve, being nervous or scared and just flat out right what some would consider blasphemy. 
And boy, that's a, that's a big word that we usually don't use very often, especially blasphemy when we talk about the Holy Spirit and that power with, which is within us. Mainly because that's probably about two sermons long. <laughs> that's, that's a fairly big subject. But to take a very lengthy and hard subject and to sum it up into human terms, let's look at it this way. Say someone tells a lie about you. I don't mean just a lie, I mean a big lie. A very bad lie, the one that hurts you deeply. Now that person not only tells that lie, but that person keeps telling that lie. They actually start to spread that rumor and that lie about you. And everybody knows how, how fast a good rumor can spread. How does that make you feel? Bet you're not a happy person. Now let's say that person that's telling that lie and spreading that rumor, say it's your best friend. Or worse yet, one of your own. One of your own children who you love dearly. One of your own children who you would lay your life down for. Doesn't that just use another phrase, put the icing on the cake? Now, just how bad does that make you feel? Personally, I think it would be worse if one of my grandkids did that. I mean, because I'd lay down my life for, for any one of my kids, but I would do so much more so for my grandkids because it's the re having kids was, I mean, I found that out later in life. Having kids was the reason I, you know, I, I had kids was so I could get grandkids. I mean, they're so much better. <laughs> but I think it's that, and again, putting this down to earthly terms, I feel it's sort of that way with God when we deny him. When people and false teachers, they start to tell lies about him. When they take his own words and they twist it and they turn it and uses it against him for these people's own personal gain. Now I know that one, I'm trying to explain something in simple terms that we as mere humans can understand because I know, we, no one knows the mind and the way of God ways of God, plus the whole subject, like I said, we, we, it's, that's a good two-sermon long subject, but that would be my best attempt to put it in worldly or earthly terms. How do you think God feels when man tells lies or spreads rumors against him? But every time God is not able but is standing he, he's, he's standing there waiting for us so that he can forgive us just like with Peter yes even if we deny him like Peter God is more than willing to forgive us why? because we're his children created in his own image just like the prodigal son all we have to do is come home. All we have to do is ask. Are you like the prodigal son? 
Or are you like, or are you like Peter and have to say something against God that we've regretted and we need forgiveness for? All we have to do is ask. All we have to do to come home is to take that step. If you have that need, won't you take that step? Won't you come home? Won't you come to him by simply asking? Won't you do so as we stand and sing?